So, um, Mark, mm-hmm. we had just started talking about the normal activities of the mind when the mind wanders away from the breath. That's quite often, quite typical. Mm-hmm. Um, I have um, I have read literature that says that humans take about fourteen thousand breaths a day, and generally, for most people, those are um, automatic and not part of our conscious awareness, and that it happens through an atomic system that's located um, above the brainstem in what's called the old reptilian brain, right back in this area on this side and on this area on this side of the brain. Uh, And that our time spent watching the breath, for the average person who is not practicing out of Panasati, is probably only mindful of one or two breaths a day. Mm-hmm. Maybe not even that. Maybe even when taking a deep breath, they're not even uh, doing it consciously. It's just happening automatically. Um, an example of that is like reading a piece of news or seeing something that's, su- that's surprising and you go, <gasps> and that's mm-hmm. a deep breath, but we're still not paying attention to that deep breath. We're paying attention to what uh, we were thinking about when we had that deep breath. Okay, so... Um, harassing ourselves because we're not watching the breath uh, doesn't seem logical. It, it yeah, seems yeah. That, uh, um, that, we're, that we're not doing it. We're building up a brand new practice of beginning to be mindful of the breathing and watching the breathing. And yet, when uh, the new student, when the mind wanders away from the breath, the first thing that happens with the student is sati to remind, to remember, oh, I was supposed to be watching my breath here. Maybe I'm in a meditation retreat or I'm sitting on the floor in a meditation hall or I've set an alarm clock or something at home and I'm intending to watch my breath. And then the mind wanders away from the breath. And then we start hassling ourselves about it. Oh, no, you should be watching your breath. Oh, no, what is wrong with this meditation? Maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe I'm not practicing often enough. Maybe this, maybe that. But all of these maybes have the quality of doubt. Doubt about the practice. Doubt about the teacher. Doubt about the timing. Doubt about can you do it or not. And doubt is one of the five hindrances. And we just normally fall into this hindrance of doubt whenever we find something that we find confusing or uh, we don't understand it or we don't like it or whatever like that. This is a natural tendency for the hindrances to arise. Mm-hmm. That in fact, more than likely, the mind had already been in a state of hindrance. That's why it wandered away from the breath in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And the, and and the one thing that we don't know is how long has it wandered away from the breath. Mm-hmm. When I was taking the Goenka retreats, one of the ideas was, or this is something that the um, 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 uh, the volunteers, the, the assistant teachers, and that. Uh, 
it's a well-known thing that on the first day of the retreat, the mind will wander away four, five, six, seven times in an hour, and the students can can catch it. But by day six, now the mind is wandering around, wandering away from the breath 40 or 50 or 60 times. Mm-hmm. And then the students really don't like it, and they call it monkey mind. All right? This is all a matter of not practicing carefully and properly because we're not gathering all of the factors together that we need. That certainly mindfulness of breathing is the important point. And that's why it is called anapanasati, which literally translates to mindfulness of the in-breath and mindfulness of the out-breath. Though the word mindfulness is not really a good translation of the word sati that a much better way of looking at sati is to remember, or another way of looking at it is to wake up, to be here now, to be in the present moment, to be fully awake. Well, what you're doing with uh, that hindrance there is when we recognize that the mind has wandered away from the breath, the first thing that we do is, is that we start back into the hindrances again, in the sense of, oh no, this is hard, not sure if I'm doing it right, what's the point? And that in many cases, uh, uh, students will go off into either one or two directions. One of the directions is, is that they go to the kind of meditation where they're working really hard. They're, they're determined to be able to stay on it. These meditators, after a long kind of practice, will continue working with the hindrances, but at least they can say that they're going deep in their meditation. But they still haven't cleaned out the hindrances of the mind. The other kind of meditation practice that happens in this case is what is called choiceless awareness. And this is actually advertised. Choiceless awareness, they say, means to just be aware of what the mind is doing, but don't make any choices about it. Just sort of wake up to the point of seeing what the mind is doing. And you can add the breath to that or not. But this is not the teaching of the Buddha, that the Buddha talks about hindrances in many cases and in many ways, under many different positions to indicate that the the primary job for the beginning meditator and eventually the first thing that happens when we come back is, is that we come back free of the hindrances. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing, is that we have to become free from the hindrances. So in practice of anapanasati, when we have sati, when we wake up, we want to make sure that we're waking up enough so that we can throw the hindrances out and put a new thought, a wholesome thought, a non-hindering thought into the mind. Mm-hmm. Now let's go back to that point about waking up enough. Let me give you the example of this. When we first wake up in the morning, and uh, we don't get out of bed. We just wake up. And then we have the idea that maybe I'll put on the snooze alarm or I'll wait for just a minute, and then later I'll wake up. Have you ever had that? You, most people mm-hmm. have that experience every time they wake up. 
Every time we wake up, we don't get up. We just wake up and then lollygag for a while, laying in it, in the bed, and then something will happen. Uh, something will motivate us. Something will wake us up enough so that we actually then get out of bed. And, and you generally do that too. So you wake up enough to know that you're awake, but you're not awake enough to get out of bed. And then later we wake up even more, and that's the wake up that we wake up to get out of bed. We need to also have that mentality with the hindrances also, that we, want, we don't want to just wake up a little bit to see what's going on. We want to wake up enough to get out of it. Now, there was a very important point that the Buddha made. It's actually a very famous statement. And that he made this statement not when he was around bhikkhus. This was in the time before he became enlightened, when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. You probably both have heard the story. And that what he did was is that he started to watch what the mind was doing. And that's when he could say, Aha, I see you, Mara. Now, the word Mara actually means uh, various things in various contexts. One of the words for the word Mara is, uh, or Maya, uh, is um, the world, or even the devil. But generally, the way that we're applying this is that this is the states of mind that we have. And in that regard, uh, at this time, he was he was talking about dukkha and the causes of dukkha, or what we mean by dukkha is unsatisfactory states of mind. It doesn't have to be suffering. In fact, most people don't suffer, but they are dissatisfied. How can we come out of our states of dissatisfaction? The answer is, is that we catch our mind in that state of dissatisfaction, and we say, aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, uh -huh, I see you thought that has to do with doubt. So when, when the mind wakes up enough to say, all uh, oh, the mind has wandered away from the breath, that's too bad. Now we need a, a real wake up. And that real wake up is to say, aha, uh -huh, I see you, Myra. I see you bad thought or that um, uh, hindering thought that prevents me from actually being able to take a joyous breath. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that aha, I see you, Mara, is a major, major point in mm -hmm. time to wake up enough to where we can see what the mind is doing and we can recognize that what the mind is doing is a hindrance to having us in a very good state. And so when we say aha, I see you, Mara, that's actually kind of a. Uh, um, a, gl a gladdened or a happy or an insightful uh, wake up in the sense that, ah, yeah, I see you. I got you that time. So I can that, see you now. Yeah, is that something like, uh, will that just be like naturally? Like, oh, yeah, this is good. Or is it something that you have to like actively cultivate that kind of joyfulness? The answer is both. Mm-hmm. The answer is both in the sense that, yes, your joy is quite natural. You spend a bit of time every day in joy. If you spent 
or let us say those people who would spend day after day with absolutely not one joyful moment all day will probably wind up with an early death. They'll probably give themselves a heart attack or a stroke or uh, mm -hmm. by, by being unhappy all the time, that means that the body is literally being flooded with chemicals that yeah. are inappropriate to our situation. Being angry all the time is very harmful, detrimental to the body. Mm -hmm. So there are points in time, there are moments where everybody has uh, a point of relaxation, a point of ease. Very, very few people have no points of, of, of time when they're at ease. Mm -hmm. And it's actually possible for you to wake up in the sense of uh, the mind has wandered away from the breath, but when you wake up, you can wake up to the uh, naturally to the thought of, oh yeah, I was going to watch my breath, and, and I can. Okay, so we can have those kind of happy thoughts naturally. Mm -hmm. We just don't have enough of them. We need to cultivate them more. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that, in fact, in the, uh, uh, the, the technique of Anapanasati, the Buddha had a very, very long, detailed sutta. And then there's a number of other suttas that are in support of this sutta. It's the Anapanasati suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya number 118. And in the Anapanasati sutta, he lists all of the various stages and steps that you and I will be going over. Uh, to know all of the steps of Anapanasati, but there are a few key points that we need to practice. Mm -hmm. The number one is the long, deep breath. They keep coming back to the long, deep breath, but that long, deep breath is intentionally satisfying and relaxing. A long, relaxed, deep breath, as opposed to the short, shallow breathing that we normally do um, in the conservative way that the mind operates when it's on automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. And so we generally don't breathe enough. So by actual practicing breathing over and over and over again, practicing to bring the breathing up, we'll begin now to develop a new habit of remembering to breathe well, as opposed to breathing in the ordinary way and ordinary breathing for meditators when they're sitting for a while will bring on drowsiness, which is another hindrance, which means that the easy way out of that hindrance is by taking some deep breaths and waking back up. All right. So with the deep breath and the deep breathing of uh, step one of Anapanasati, we have also already been applying another step of Anapanasati, which was the sati itself, the waking up. And part of the waking up process is to experience or to investigate the mind, the states of mind. And when you did wake up, you woke up enough to say, I'm not watching the breath. The mind has wandered away from the breath. That is, in fact, a kind of an investigation of the mind to start watching the mind to see what the mind is doing. So the next thing that happened was, oh no, it's hard to do. That thought needs to be seen also. The waking up process is to start watching 
what the mind is doing, the kind of states that it is in, and to make sure that the kind of thoughts that we have are wholesome thoughts as opposed to hindering thoughts or unwholesome thoughts. And so uh, the kind of thoughts that we have about this is hard or the breath is not really all of that satisfying or enjoyable, those are kind of thoughts that keep us stuck in our old ways. Those are the normal kind of thoughts that we've always had. And we're trying now to develop some new thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that new thought, the number one new thought that we're going to add to our vocabulary is, aha, I see you. Aha, I see you, hindrance. Aha, I see you, mind. Aha, I can see that there is doubt there. And we can also uh, do it in the negative way of, aha, I see that I'm not happy right now. Aha, I can see that I'm not satisfied right now. That's the whole point of doing meditation anyway, is because people have enough wisdom to recognize that they're not satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seems There's like... A lot. Go ahead. It, was, it seems like that's kind of... So I'll do that, and like sometimes, like I notice it. I'm like, oh yeah, that did. Like I see my brain doing that crazy thing where I'm like, just oh man, you gotta pay attention to the breath or whatever. I'm like, that's kind of unpleasant. It's why, why am I doing that? And then I'll be like, oh, that's nice. And then I'll go back to like paying attention to the breath. And then I'll be like, kind of like mostly focused on the breath. And then I'll start looking out for like other things that are a little bit unsatisfactory and kind of like letting go of them, but then all of a sudden I'm not paying attention to the breath anymore, but I'm mm-hmm. still kind of doing like the Baja type thing, I guess. All right. Uh, so how do you like so divide between, yeah. This, this is the way that we do that. That's mm-hmm. a very, very good question. Uh, and it's this sense that we want to look at the breath as an object of sati but that the breathing is going to be long and slow so that we've got plenty of time to do other things, other kind of thinking, other than just watching the breath. Mm-hmm. But when we're watching the breath, that, that's a point of sati. So we only need to watch the breath uh, with sati long enough to know that it's a long, deep breath. And then the next point is to recognize this is a long, deep breath relaxing out breath I like the word sigh a long deep out breath those are the only two points that we need is to understand that this is a long deep breath and that this is a long deep out breath when we do that that gives us other times to uh, begin to note what the mind is doing if we note, uh, if we start thinking about something else that's not associated with the anapanasati, the mind can very easily wander away. Mm-hmm. It can even easily run away if we think that we're just merely noting or watching the breath without making any changes to it. That really the anapanasati practice of the Buddha is all about change. It's not just about observation, it's about change. But we need to be able to see and observe first, and then we can make the change. 
So it's almost like a one-two punch. Most people in meditation think that all they have to do is, is uh, mindfulness or sati to just look and that that's enough. But really we're learning to, with the correct practice, we're learning to um, control things. That in fact you can think of it like this, that the normal state of mind of most people is being a victim. We're, we start off victims, we're little children, we can't change our own diaper, we have to be fed, we're told to go to school, we've been given a whole bunch of rules, and meanwhile the furniture is too big for us, and so as children we get into the habit of thinking that big people are better or more powerful or somewhat uh, in charge here, and that I'm not. We then hold that deep ingrained habit into adulthood, the, the, uh, the habit of being a victim. And so we continue to play the victim's game even when we're playing or uh, practicing meditation. For instance, when the mind wandered away from the breath and you notice that the mind had become uh, away, uh, had wandered away from the breath, you became a victim right then and there. You, you took on the victim's position of, oh, this is hard. Am I doing it right? But the winner's attitude would be, oh, no, I can do this. Never mind. Start again. That was actually Goenka's phrase. He would say, never mind. Start again. <laughs> so remember that. Never mind. Start again. Mm -hmm. Yes, the mind wandered away. That's the nature of the mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. But when we're actually controlling the breathing, it's less likely for the mind to wander away because we're actively, intently controlling the breath. At least twice during that breath, we're making sure that this is a long breath. We don't have to make sure that the breath is a long breath all through the long in-breath. But just noting that this is a long in-breath and then the body will take care of finishing the breath off. Now, we don't have to go to, let us say, 100 to zero. That normally people, when they're breathing in a shallow way, they'll go from 40 to 60%. So on an in-breath, they only fill up at about 60%. And when they exhale, they only go down to maybe 35, 40, maybe down to a third. But when we're practicing this, we're going to actually change that ratio to something like 80-30 um, or 80-25. Not that we're going to top up. We don't have to top up. Mm -hmm. But in fact, just a long, natural, easygoing, deep breath. We want that deep breath there because of the, uh, the depth of the breathing actually increases the oxygen flow from the outside into the lungs, from the lungs into the blood, from the blood into the brain. So this is an oxygenation process that actually gets the mind fit for work. This is further part of the wake-up process. They're beginning to wake up. We wake up every breath on the in-breath. We wake up every breath on the out-breath. We're making sure that we're getting oxygenated. We also begin to pay attention to what the body's doing because the body, in fact, can become tingly alive. If we start off with our meditation when we're tired, we'll find out that actually we're perking up. We can feel better because we're taking some deep breathing. 
However, that deep breathing is also uh, needs another component. Not only are we learning to control the breathing, but now we're just beginning to learn to control the mind. In fact, the sati, the waking up, was controlling the mind. Most of the time, we don't. We're just lollygag around and not pay much attention to what's going on inside. But sati means to really pay attention to what the mind is doing right now, to really get a load of this, this thought. And when we do, we often say, I see you, Myra. I caught you. I know what you're doing. Okay, so this is a new kind of control. So after we begin to start breathing naturally uh, in this long, deep, uh, easygoing way, now we have plenty of time to continue to control the mind in the sense of only allowing wholesome thoughts to come in. Only allowing wholesome thoughts, like thoughts of doubt or thoughts of, oh, I don't like this, or thoughts of, uh, I don't know why I'm practicing this anyway, or thoughts of, well, I know I'm going to get someplace, but right now it's not good enough. All right, these are all the kinds of thoughts that are typical of our normal life. These are hindrances. Let's start using thoughts that are not hindering. The thoughts would be, wow, I really like this deep breath. This is really nice right now. And so the kind of thoughts that we will have are the kind of thoughts that are associated with this very moment. So our thoughts are associated with the here now. But in fact, you can understand that thoughts about the past and thoughts about the future are merely thoughts of hindering, and they're also fraught with danger. It's very dangerous, these um, hindering thoughts, and later we'll talk about some of the dangers of them. But right now, we want to get the method going so that we understand that we need to throw these hindrances out, which means we begin to get fairly good at catching them. And so in the beginning, we can say that the easy way to see what is a hindrance and what is not a hindrance is that if we're thinking about this present moment and what's happening right now, this is not a hindering thought. Any kind of thoughts that are associated with someplace else, some other time, if the mind is wandering or if it's in doubt or if we want something we don't have, or we, want, we have to put up with something that we don't want to put up with. And that would be, for instance, for the meditator sitting too long, and then their legs start to hurt. And now they're in a state of not liking the sensations in the leg. It's not a good idea to sit with thoughts of not liking. It's better to move the leg, be relieved from that pain, and then we say, wow, now it feels good again. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to have any kind of meditation practice that is actually any kind of torture, but there are techniques in meditation that we will have that because, they're, uh, because of the skills have already started to be developed, that means that we can now mentally lift weights that we couldn't lift before. So as we're getting stronger, what at one time used to be a torture is now just a, a meditation tool or a technique. An example of that would be when we get sick. That Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says that being sick is a really excellent opportunity to practice. 
Why? Because the, nat the mind naturally goes into hindrances very much when we're sick. So can we stay out of being, uh, in other words, let the body be sick, but the mind's not sick. The, the mind is well energized, the mind is focused, the mind is pure, and the mind is actually capable of helping the body become well again. But normally what happens is the body gets sick, the mind gets sick too, and now everything's sick. And, and you, you've been around when you're, when you're sick and you know that when you're around you say, oh, this is bad, I don't like this, and uh, oh, poor me, and all of those kind of thoughts, which are nothing but hindrances that help us feel worse about our sickness. Hmm. But in fact, if we could come out of that. So let's not uh, right in the beginning say, well, I'm going to go get sick just so I can practice Anapanasati. Because there's plenty of reasons in the normal life. You don't have to get sick, but there will be times when you do get sick or when uh, times are really heavy, and then that would be an opportunity to practice the skills that you've already developed, that we have to begin in the beginning. This is why we want to stay in seclusion and to stay away from other people. That's why they have retreat centers and call it retreat and have meditation halls and call them those things. It's because we can get away from the world. Actually, we get away from the world in a physical way, but we still bring the world with us mentally. So the way that we can say it is, is that we get secluded from the physical world so we can practice Anapanasati, and Anapanasati then is the practice of getting the world also out of the mind. So that when I'm sitting in the meditation hall, the only thing that is there now in the mind is what's happening in the meditation hall. <laughs> okay, rather than uh, thinking about the outside world. But when students start a meditation retreat course, generally the first day or two, they're worrying about and thinking about all the troubles they had about getting there. And then towards the end of the retreat, they start planning about leaving the retreat leaving only a little bit of retreat for actual practice. Mm -hmm. right? Why? Because the mind still goes out. But even if we don't have an opportunity to go to retreat, practicing this on a regular basis, often, every day, is very good. To practice coming out of our suffering, to practice coming out of our unhappiness, to practice coming out of our uh, uh, sleepy, uh, normal way of living and bring ourselves intent intentionally into a state of joy and satisfaction. This is actually what Anapanasati is all about. This is why step 10 of, of Anapanasati, of gladdening the mind, actually starts to affect the way we feel. The feelings and uh, our thinking part and our feeling part are interrelated deeply interrelated, so that the feelings we have affect our thoughts, and the thoughts that we have affect our feelings. Hmm. And it, if you just let it roll on, then that's samsara, just the old story of bad feelings give bad thoughts, bad thoughts give bad mm -hmm. feelings, and on it rolls. But we can stop that with sati. Yeah. We can say, uh -huh, I can, in fact, start giving myself better thoughts, 
to think of. Thoughts that we would call wholesome. Hmm. So what... uh, Go ahead. So sometimes, like, I'll be, you know, pretty aware of the present moment, like, in practice or just, you know, for a moment in daily life. And then it doesn't feel super good. Like, there's, like, you know, emotions and stuff. It feels kind of, like, in my body. So is there... Did you just change the, like... Is there a way to just relate to that? And then it'll kind of get better? Yes. Or, yeah. That, in fact, you're, you're pointing at something that is uh, a very important part of the practice. And that is that the, the feelings that we have, the emotions that we have, do, in fact, also have a bodily component. That anxiety, you can actually feel in the body. And you can also see people out in the world who may not be aware of their anxiety, and yet everybody in the room can see it. They can see how yep. uptight it is. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Another one is is that you can uh, see people when they're angry. They will deny they're angry, but everybody in the room knows they're angry. Okay. Yeah. So generally, the body knows how we feel and, distri- and distributes that information to the people around us but we ourselves don't know it because we're not paying attention to what the body's doing. So, congratulations. You're beginning to wake up to see what the body is doing. Mm -hmm. That all of these emotions are in there. Now, in the beginning of practice, we, we start with learning to control the breathing so that we breathe more naturally, we breathe more deeply, and we oxygenate and energize the body as well as purify the blood. This is an important quality, that deep breathing actually helps purify the blood. They've, uh, the, the scientists are actually now beginning to understand this more and more because of the coronavirus that they recognized in the hospitals. They were killing people left, right, and center because of they've left people in the hospital beds the way that people are always laying in hospital beds, on their back which is not a very good way for breathing. That if you're, in the, if you're going to lay down, the best way to do it is on your side because then the, you can get good airflow. But in the process of breathing, what happens is, is that all of the stuff that's in the lungs when we're deeply, deeply breathing will start to come out. So if you've got pneumonia, then the uh, fluids will come out. If you've got uh, um, coronavirus in the lungs, then by breathing deeply, these virus particles will come out. Also, amino acids that are the residue of adrenaline and cortisol and and in a lot of different uh, bodily chemistry, uh, the the lungs do the first job of cleaning up the little stuff, and then the leftover stuff is done by the kidneys. This is one of the reasons why people with Corona-19 virus were also having a lot of kidney problems, is because they weren't breathing well. But when they start putting people on breathing and start getting them to do that, in fact, uh, uh, one of my students had his dad catch it and he was in the hospital he didn't go on the ventilator but the, they did have someone in there uh some sort of physical therapist who at that time was going around getting all the patients to breathe and so uh, uh matt got on the phone with his dad while he was in the hospital and did anapanasati with him mm-hmm. and he was able to get out of the hospital he never went on ventilation or anything he was actually with the breathing 
to cure himself. So this is something that we begin to understand is this is very healthy for us to start breathing deeply, breathing regularly, and breathing in a way that uh, purifies the blood and gets the body oxygenated. And we begin to feel better about that. But we also need to watch what we're doing in the sense of uh, knowing when we're breathing that we begin to know and understand the body much better. For instance, we begin to uh, open up the senses so that we can feel the touch of the cloth. We can feel the wind on our faces or the, uh, the air on our arms or other places like that because we're beginning to pay more and more attention to the body. To where in our normal society, the body is just forgotten about completely because we just get all mental and everything. And so now we're coming back to the real world, the body world, the world of deep breathing and that kind of stuff. So these thoughts that are wholesome, let's talk about that for a moment. First off, it's under, important to understand that not all of our thinking is uh, talking to ourselves, that that's only part of the way that we think. That in fact, if you're engaged in an activity and are thinking about that activity, you're probably thinking about that activity with not a lot of words. An example of that is musicians who are playing music. They don't talk to themselves about the music that they're playing. They're just playing the music, and they're uh, focusing on that. Uh, the same thing with sports. Or even with uh, uh, things like needlepoint, where someone is sitting there and they're doing the knitting, and they're not uh, uh, talking to themselves very much about it. That in fact, they can almost go uh, subconscious so that they can sit there and knit while, and the hands are doing the knitting while they're talking to someone. I've even seen musicians be able to play the piano while uh, uh, someone is talking to them. In fact, the, 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 the fun story is that the piano player in the piano bar uh, is, is playing a favorite piece of music that, it, that he and everyone likes. And a lady in a nice, beautiful evening gown comes and leans on the piano and strikes up a conversation with him. And he talks to her, and he doesn't miss a note. And that's pretty impressive. Until the next scene, a few months later, and in walks um, Joe Friday and his uh, friend, you know, Dragnet, you ever heard of it? And anyway, huh. uh, they, they go in and, and give uh, a police-style investigation and interrogation to this guy who's playing the piano, and he answers all of their questions, and he still doesn't miss a note. How can he do this? The answer is, is because the memory systems and the thinking process is actually right down into the body, so that when we learn music, the body learns the music. And when we're thinking about it, we think about it with the body rather than with words. And so start to look at this, start recognizing that some of the thinking that you do is not verbal. Some of the thinking that we do is just basically paying attention or watching what's going on. This is the kind of thinking that we want to allow to happen while we're in the present moment because this present moment doesn't take a whole lot of conversation, but it does take a kind of thinking. We have to 
keep focused on what's happening right now. That in fact, if there is something that we're going to do uh, with that in the form of thinking is basically we're going to use verbal language to talk ourselves into feeling really good. Hmm. With, with things like, wow, this is really good. Or, aha, I caught you. Let me come back and enjoy this next breath. And so I start breathing deeply and I say, wow, this feels good. Wow, this is so nice. Okay. What we're doing with this is that we're, by removing the hindrances, we're bringing about a state of mind so that we can now just to start to control our feelings. In the beginning, we learned how to control the mind just enough to wake up. Then we learned to control the body in the sense of learning how to breathe and breathe well. And then we start focusing on the kind of thoughts that are wholesome thoughts. And eventually, like a little while later, maybe 10 seconds later, but eventually, we'll come to the point of beginning to feel good also. So now we're controlling the body, we're controlling the mind, and we're controlling the feelings. This is something that people don't spend a lot of time doing. They don't practice this. And because they're practice, not practicing it, we generally live our lives out of control. Which means that we're subject to the habits and the whims of uh, old experience. And so we live a life of habit. But if we start to wake up, now we can take control of the body. If we wake up, now we can take control of the mind, so we start having wholesome thoughts. As we begin to have more wholesome thoughts, we then start to feel better. Now, let's talk about this and tie it all together back with the Eightfold Noble Path, because, in fact, even though we're talking about practicing Anapanasati, all of the important stuff is based into the Eightfold Noble Path. So the first one is right view. The right view basically is, uh, and we'll talk about it later, but right view is the ability to change our viewpoint. So that we don't just see things from one point of view. That we're able to move our viewpoint around so that we can begin to uh, investigate. That the whole quality of right view is to investigate. To really look at what's going on. To begin to see. And by investigating, we also begin to have uh, wisdom. The investigation is what brings about the insight or the vipassana. If we're not investigating, then we're not going to find much of anything. So the investigation is a very, very important quality. It's, in fact, the primary ingredient. Mm -hmm. It's the first thing that, in fact, neither one of you would call me on, uh, on Skype if you didn't have enough right view to recognize that, wait a minute, something where I can see enough dukkha to recognize I need to do something about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. Okay, so that's right view congratulations now we're going to start bringing that up more and more but it has a twin and the twin is sati both of these are path factors the eightfold noble path the number one and the number two items is right view and right sati to wake up 
to really look at what's going on. So that means that we have to be fully awake so that we can do a full investigation. We have to remember over and over again. So sati is almost like the occurrence. How often can we do it? And so the building up for the skill of sati is how often can we do it before we forget about it and then we start it up again. Okay, so this is the whole quality of sati is how often can we remember to where the quality of uh, uh, right view uh, or the investigation is how deep an investigation can we do. As our skills grow, the depth of the investigation will also grow in the sense of things that we used to think were not hindrances because we couldn't see the dukkha. Now we can see the dukkha and see that as a hindrance. So just as you were coming on and not being able to see the doubt as a hindrance, you just thought that that was part of practice. No, that's Mm -hmm. that's part of not practice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's the part of not practice is to have these doubts. So when you begin to wake up, you can begin to see them now. So the next aspect of the path, which now begins to get somewhere, and that is right effort. One's right effort, then, is uh, the right effort in the sense of not too much and not too little, but just the right amount. Now, what I mean by just the right amount is just the right amount to get the work, to get the job done. If we put up too much effort, then the mind will get too tired too quickly. If we're not putting enough effort in, then the uh, then it winds up being nothing more than uh, choiceless awareness mm-hmm. to let the hindrances roll on. So I've noticed that, uh, like when I'm trying to figure out the right amount of effort to put into practice, like sometimes I catch myself like kind of oh back to the breath, and then I feel like my body like tense up just a little bit. But is that kind of, you want to That's have effort, but be, effort. And yeah, so yeah. when you recognize that you've just tensed your body, the first thing you want to do is relax it. Aha, I caught yeah, you yeah. tensing up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so we don't want to put up too much effort. But the right amount of effort we're going to put into two different places. One of the places we're going to put in right effort is to make sure that we're actually going to start breathing deeply. We're actually going to start applying the, the breathing and the sake to each breath. As it breathes in and as it breathes out, we're going to maintain being able to keep track of that. This is one's right effort. Wrong effort would just let uh, say, oh, I'm watching the breathing, but now we're not doing anything about it. So we actually, it takes a bit of effort to make sure that this is a long breath, and this is a short, uh, or this is an, a long in-breath, and this is a long out-breath. We will actually get into the habit of that, and when the habit is formed, that means that the effort is almost effortless. We're looking for that. We're looking for, uh, we start out in effort with just a little bit of effort, and then as we gain skills, the effort gets effortless. There's no effort involved. So if you find yourself working in meditation, that's not the right effort. Mm-hmm. Really wanting it, okay? And people get into doing that when they set goals for themselves in meditation. For instance, yep. I'm meditating because I want to become enlightened. 
The answer is no, you're already enlightened right now. Just enjoy it already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're already enlightened. You walked into the meditation hall. You didn't bring a bunch of garbage. You didn't bring Wall Street in here with you, did you? Uh -huh. <laughs> and yeah. so already you're light enough. But we still want things. The point here is, is that no, is we need to come out of the wanting for the future into the enjoyment of the now. To be here now. So... Uh, another aspect of that would be uh, w wanting to go deep or wanting bliss out of meditation. And a lot of people will practice for a long time sitting and squatting on the floor hoping that someday they will feel really good. And eventually it might happen that they'll stumble across feeling good. And then they say, whippy kai okay, I got it. But then the next time they sit down and for a few times after that, the bliss doesn't come. And now they get all disappointed and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So this is not the right way to practice. Is uh, wanting to go deep so that we can find bliss way down there. But in fact, I don't even like the word bliss very much because it's got way too much highfalutin stuff into it. Just basic joy, happiness. Even those have gotten somehow out of reach in our society. So maybe you can just say a mental smile. A little mental smile, okay? Just enough satisfaction to say, well, I can come out of the hindrances, be here now, and enjoy the moment. This is what we mean by satisfaction. This is actually a feeling. So let's talk about feelings for just a little bit because we're going right in there, okay? On one side, we have feelings like fear, anger, frustration, heartache, uh, grief, sadness, confusion. And then on the other hand, we have feelings like satisfaction, the feeling of success, the feeling of uh, security and safety. A feeling of um, not confusion, but um, how do you say it? Eager to go look at something. Um, we become how to say it? I've forgotten the word. Like actually. a curiosity or curiosity. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. Yes, curiosity is a good feeling. Confusion, not so much. But we can, can change our confusion feelings into curiosity by adding joy. This is what we're looking for, is we're going to begin to uh, practice feeling the way that we can feel rather than feeling the way we got into the habit of feeling. You know, little kids, they feel good. Little three-year-olds, five-year-olds, you see them playing, and they'll just play and play and have so much fun until an adult comes in the room. And here you have little Johnny writing on the wall. He's got his crayons out, writing on the white wall in his bedroom, and he's just having so much fun. He does this for 5, 10, 15, or 20 minutes, and Mom comes in and catches him, and oh, does she have a fit. When little Johnny grows up, what's he going to remember? Is he going to remember 20 minutes of having fun riding on the wall, or is he going to remember Mom coming in and 
I'm <laughs> doing whatever mom's going to do. That's what <laughs> it's the dangerous times. And that the human mind is built that way because of the survival instinct. That not just humans, but animals have that survival instinct. That we got our, uh, our survival instinct from the animals, which means that dangerous things mean something important. But non-dangerous things don't mean much of anything. So we tend to not remember the good times. We tend to remember the bad times. This is one of the good reasons for staying out of old times, is because the old times are often remembered with a lot of suffering involved with it. So when we remember it, we'll begin to feel bad again. But the point is, is that if we have that kind of thought and we wake up and see that kind of thought, we can say, wait a minute, I don't have to think about that. I can think of something else. I can think about here now. Here's an example of it. The lady on the Internet has just said, oh, my cat has got cancer and the cat's about to die and I'm going to have it euthanized. And then someone says, please don't murder your cat. Let it die in your arms. And then later that guy who said that, he's thinking later about that what he said about the woman uh, euthanizing her cat. And then he remembers his own dead dog. And now he's in suffering. He's in regret. He's in remorse. He missed his animal. Okay. This is exactly how it happens. If we think about the cat dying, then the, the old dog dying years ago can come up. There's the mind associates like that. So this is a good reason to stay out of the past because it's dangerous in there. <laughs> it's really dangerous. And we're likely to feel bad if we go rummaging around in the past. And one of the things that we'll find in the past is, is problems that did not get solved in the past. An example of that would be an argument that I had with somebody uh, yesterday. And so now the mind is grinding on about that argument. Why? Because we want to have something new to say. Wait a minute, when I see her, I'm going to tell her this, and that'll win my argument for me. But if I go and I tell her this, she'll say that, and now we're back into it again, and I didn't solve the problem, and I didn't win the argument. In fact, arguments have a quality to it. Nobody ever won an argument. No argument has never, ever been won. Not an argument. You can convince somebody of something, but you're not going to get them convinced of anything if you're arguing with them and they're in an argumentative mode. So arguments don't work. Better to stay out of them, especially when you're just remembering an argument that you had with someone. That's when it's really painful because it's got no value so this is where wisdom comes in when we investigate things and recognize that everything in the past winds up being painful that means it's better to stay out of the past let's stay in the here now and this is why we're practicing anapanasati not just so that we can stay in the present moment for 10 minutes five or six times a day or even for an hour a day or whatever practice that we have, we're practicing this to develop new skills and new habits so we can spend the whole day more or less in the present moment without going into the past and going into hindrances and going into states of unsatisfactoriness. Well, how are we going to do that? 
The answer is every time you remember. Ah, every time we remember, we can practice these items, right view, right sati, which we just had, and right effort. In the process of doing that, something new is beginning to build, and that is the second part, the second point of the Eightfold Noble Path, which we call right attitude. We're actually beginning to change our attitude, not just about practice or about the moment, we're our whole lives. Because normally people, we'll, we spend much of our time in victim's position and not very much time in the lion's position or in the winner's position. And yet right attitude means that we can change our attitude. If we can change our, our breathing, if we can control and change our thoughts, we can also begin to change our attitude about it. And the attitude that we want to cultivate is the attitude, I can do this. The attitude is basically, I can clean out my mind. I can become free from the hindrances. This is the first major change in attitude. So that we begin to get to the point that no matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, I can clean it out. I can come back to this present moment and enjoy the life. I can see the way things really are. And it doesn't matter how clouded my mind gets, whether I'm sick or maybe even in the process of being arrested and I've got handcuffs and I'm handcuffed and I'm sitting in the back of a squad car. This is a good time to practice Anapanasati, you know, <laughs> if you can remember. But most people, when they get arrested, boy, do they feel bad. But can you? But there's no reason to feel bad because you got arrested. You don't have any choice over getting arrested, but you do have a choice over how you feel. If you'll take that uh, the the time to develop the skill, so that you can in fact control the way you feel. And so, this this way of controlling the way we feel is actually now a new aspect that we call right attitude. And this is part of the Eightfold Noble Path, the attitude of, I can handle this. So when we get arrested and we're sitting in the back of the squad car, most people say, oh, I don't know what's going to happen, all of this business out there, and those people are going to know about it, and oh, poor me, and all of this kind of stuff. Very few of us ever have the, the idea, hot diggity dog, now is a good time to practice Anapanasati. <laughs> wow, I'm going to feel so good when I get out of the back of this squad car. And when I get to the station house, I'm going to tell the station officer how good these cops are. They're my good friends. Okay. Now, so the question is, how can we get ourselves into that state? The answer is, sake. We practice. We practice. We think about it. We're investigating. How good is my sake? What should I investigate? I should investigate what I'm doing right now. How am I feeling? What's my mind doing? And so we begin to investigate. We begin to see that, in fact, we can do it. We are capable of it. We do not have to be in the loser's position of, oh, poor me, I've got problems. And that was, in fact, what you were doing. Oh, poor me, this Anapanasati, the mind wandered away from, again, okay? Mm -hmm. And when we think, and so, in fact, that point of sati, to wake up to see that we're not practicing correctly, that's the time when the hindrances are becoming full on. 
And so we have to make sure that when we do have sati, that we wake up enough to come out of that. Aha, I saw you. Aha, mm-hmm. I see you, doubt and whole mind. Aha, I see you, uh, uh, negative thought. And by doing that, we begin to develop this attitude, the can do. I can do this. No matter how obstructed the mind is, I can do this. So this is the way that we begin to practice over and over and over again. Right view, right sati, right effort, right attitude. When we practice this way, it begins to bring the mind together. We become more unified. Normally, the human being is scattered. We're not a a single person, though we have the delusion that we think that we're just one person. But in fact, we're different people depending upon how we feel, and the feelings then control who we are. An example is, I'm angry, or I'm frustrated, or I'm sad. And then the sadness takes over, and I am sad. The I is sad. But when we can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, no need to be sad right now. I can smile instead. I can be happy. There's no reason to be sad just because the laptop broke. That's another one. That's a good time to practice Anapanasati is when the laptop broke. Mm -hmm. I break a lot of laptops. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is a good time to practice. Hey, I can do that. Hey, I can fix that laptop. Or hey, I can get a new one. Or hey, I can take it to the shop. Or hey, whatever, I can do it. But I'm in charge here that I don't have to feel bad. Because the laptop broke. I am not the laptop. When we recognize I am not the laptop, then we also can see I am not the feeling. I am not the sadness. So we disassociate ourselves from the feelings. This is what we mean by, aha, I see you, Myra, which means now we've drawn out of it. We are no longer in the Myra. I am not in doubt now. I merely see the doubt. Or when we're angry, the anger owns us. But sati means we can pull out and say, aha, I can see you, anger. And that disassociation, that pulling out, means now it's not me that's anger. It's just merely anger that is there. Then we can say, let me take a deep breath. Let me control this. Let's come, come back down, calm down, settle down, jai in, jai in. That's the Thai word for the same thing. Cool out. Cool down. Everything is good. And we can do that. And then we say, hot dog, I can actually calm myself out of anger. I don't have to be angry. Now, it depends upon when and where we do that, because a lot of people will have anger, and then they get angry, and then they get into an argument, and then they finally wake up to the anger. The question is, with our, uh, our investigation and our sati, how soon can we wake up? Can we wake up after we just said one naughty thing, yell just one thing, or can we actually catch the anger before we open our mouth? Because the sooner we catch it, the easier it is to deal with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the quality of the investigation. is not necessarily that we start to investigate deeper, but that we're capable of investigating to see things happening very quickly. We can gotcha. see things yeah. that are 
you're right. So that's the quality of the investigation is it gets really fast or start to get fast and we begin to see things that are happening that we would miss before. They were subconscious. They went like that and we weren't paying attention. Now, when it goes, we can see it. Uh-huh, I see you. And so this is the way that we begin to practice and these skills start to develop. But the most important point is the quality, and it's, it's actually it's at step six of Anapanasati, and that's that quality of satisfaction. We need to practice satisfaction only in the way of not getting a whole lot of satisfaction, but to make sure that whatever satisfaction we have, we note that and we know that this is satisfaction. The example would be, if you're going to learn to play the piano, you buy a piano, you buy piano books, you take your first lesson, you've got a teacher, and now you spend the entire week reading a book. And you're not practicing the piano at all. Do you think you're going to learn to play the piano by not practicing it? Nope. Well, then how are we going to learn to develop the technique of satisfaction if we don't actually practice satisfaction? So this is the quality then as we practice satisfaction, the um, attitude begins to grow. As we gain in satisfaction, so does our attitude become stronger and stronger. But if we are dissatisfied, then that's a hindrance. So we have to get ourselves into a state of satisfaction. And how small, ever how tiny it is, at least it's good enough. Should at least be... Enough. Yeah, so just like a, like some sort of like contentment instead of like... Contentment. Okay, yeah, because I've been kind of like, all right, let's be joyful. And then trying to, all right, crank myself up a little bit, but it's just, you know... Another word that helps would be relax. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of people would say, well, joy takes a lot of work. Gladdening the mind sounds like a whole lot of work to do. But relaxing sounds easy. So let me ask you this question. Can you really relax if you're not enjoying relaxing? There's joy in relaxation. It's the mm -hmm. same thing. That in fact, while you're joyful, you are relaxed. You're not tense. Uptight. So we're talking about actually using words and concepts to point to a feeling. Yeah. And that feeling has the quality of satisfaction. It has the quality of the feeling of security and safety. It has the quality of contentment. It has the quality of relaxation. <sighs> and so this is how we practice with the outbreath, is we practice with the outbreath of being relaxed. And so we get ourselves into the state of relaxed, satisfaction, we feel safe and secure. And now the question is, how long can we keep this going? Can we sustain this? The answer is, yes, we can sustain it if we have the right kind of thoughts. And the kind of thoughts that we would have would be the thoughts of sustaining it, keeping it going. Wow, this is so nice, I'm going to keep it going. Wow, it feels good. I like this. Let's take another deep breath and feel really good. 
okay? And so we begin to sustain it. We keep it there. But if the mind wanders away, we'll fall out of that state of satisfaction and go back into the hindrances, back into the normal state of mind. So, your word contentment, love it. Relaxation, good one. Satisfaction, that works too. But this is the state, and in the Pali, the word is sukha. Mm. And the word sukha is actually directly opposite of the word dukkha. And that not only is it that way in, uh, in the Pali, but it's also that way in Thai, that the Thai language has duke and suk. And I just recently heard that the language of Gujarati also has duki and suki. And they're direct opposites. One is unsatisfying, dissatisfying, untasteful. And then the suki is satisfying or tasteful, nourishing. And so this is the state that we want to put ourselves in, is into a state of sukha, into the state of pleasure, into the state of tasting this present moment, and it tastes good, tastes delicious. I like this present moment. Okay, so this is the way that we look at it. This is the word sukha is what we're looking for. It is translated as sensual pleasure, but we actually now talking about not sensual. When we hear the word sensual pleasure in English, we go, oh, my God, the Christians are coming. Oh, the Catholics are going to get <laughs> And um, the answer to that is, no, we're talking about the, the senses of the eye, the ear, the nose, the touch, the taste, and the body sensation, the touching and whatnot, the sensuality of this present moment, of the senses themselves, and the sensual experience we have of this present moment is pleasurable. Getting ourselves into a state of pleasure, and we can talk ourselves into it with this deep breathing. So these two things are actually the work of right effort. The effort of taking a deep breath, and then the effort of relaxing. This is all we practice. And by practicing that over and over and over again, we begin to change the attitude. I can do this. I can feel good. I can have a good life. I'm in charge here. These are the kind of thoughts that we have. I had a student once who gave this. He said, each person, every one of us, is an emperor of our own pile of dirt. Every one of us is an emperor of our own pile of dirt. So my question is, are we going to be an emperor that's buried under a pile of dirt? Or are we going to be an emperor who's sitting on top of the world? The answer is, depends upon how you feel. If you feel like you're buried under your own pile of dirt, then that's dukkha. That's unsatisfying. That's um, uh, the loser's attitude of being buried under your own pile of dirt. But being an emperor, that's the attitude of being the winner. Uh, the Pali word is lokatara, which means super mundane or to be above the world, or like the emperor sitting on top of his own pile of dirt as opposed to be stuck in it. 
So this is the attitude that we're developing. And we want to develop that intentionally. When we do that, the mind becomes integrated and whole so that we're not a crowd anymore. The mind becomes noble. We don't want anything, so we're unlikely to harm someone. We don't want anything, so we're unlikely to steal. We don't want anything, so there's unlikely for us to go cause trouble between a couple. If we don't want anything, then we're good. That's the state that we want to be in, and it's a state of not wanting anything. It's a state of satisfied, satisfaction. Do either one of you have any questions about this? Uh, no, not for now. Yeah, I think. Okay. Feeling pretty good, so. Yeah. I have a question. You, so, you say your name, Marisa? Uh, Larissa. I uh, would the short I, Larissa. Larissa? Yes. Okay. Um, you have a question? So, yes. So, does this first step of Anapanasati also apply to traumatic memories that come up in meditation? not to manage them. In fact, we don't want to manage them. Um, let us say this, uh, that we became uh, the librarian or the library manager and we walk into one of the rooms of the library and all the books are off the shelf and they're piled on the floor. All right. And so the library manager is the one who has to go and look at all of these books and figure out where they go and put them back into place organizing right that's a lot of work to do a meditator who goes into that library is going to open that door see all of those books on the floor all the big pile of books and he says hmm never mind we don't need that and he closes the door and he walks out this is the way that we want to manage the memories manage the memories by not being in a state of memory and and flushing around in the past but better to be in the present moment, to stay here now, because this is pleasant. We don't have to go clean up the past. In fact, you can't clean up the past. There's many different ways to understand that. The past is gone, it's broken. We, there's no reason to try to categorize it or to uh, arrange it or to manage it in any way at all. The better thing to do is to stay out of it. Here's an example. Uh, there, there seems to be a crisis in this meeting, and everybody leaves the meeting unhappy. And then uh, being in that meeting and part of that crisis, I go and I talk to some of the other people in that meeting, and they remember the meeting completely differently than I do. It wasn't a crisis to them at all. I was the one having the crisis. But now let's talk about it in the sense, well, maybe it was a long time ago and the people don't even remember the meeting. Or maybe some of them are even dead now. How can I go and solve a crisis that nobody else remembers? Only I remember the crisis, which means that when I think about it, I'm the one in crisis. Let's get out of that. Let's let the past deal with, the, with itself. 
If somebody comes to you and says, you remember way back when, when you caused that crisis? Well, now it's something to deal with in the present moment. Let's deal with it now. But until somebody comes and talks about that crisis that happened way back when, there's no reason for you to think about that crisis that happened way back when. It's just painful. Because you can't fix that crisis. And it does, And see, we don't even know what the crisis was. It doesn't even matter what it is. In fact, we can think of almost any thought that we have in the past that we wind up feeling bad about is, is this kind of crisis that cannot be dealt with. The best thing to do is to close the door and to come out and uh, go swimming or have a shower or do something nice. <laughs> hmm. And then, in fact, uh, there's, there's, there's more to look at with that. And that is generally when we have a feeling of anxiety, the feeling itself will then generate the thoughts and then we'll remember a crisis, say, oh, I feel anxiety now because, it, I don't know why, but it must have been because of that crisis way back when. Or in fact, no, the anxiety that we have now is anxiety we have now that we didn't even think of the crisis back then until we already had the, sub, uh, uh, the anxiety. So it's better to deal with anxiety right now. This is the anxiety rather than trying to go, so maybe I'll feel better if I solve that crisis is the way that we think about it. Maybe I can get rid of my anxiety if I go solve that old problem that I made. The answer is no. <laughs> Not happen. So like if... Uh... Like, say you were attacked as a child by an elephant, and then you were scared of elephants, then you wouldn't want to sit there and think about elephants, but if your friends were like, oh, let's go to the zoo, and then you like, oh, there might be some elephants there, would you then deal with, like, the fear of elephants as it came up in that moment, and then be like, well, yeah, let's go to the zoo, because I'm not going to get attacked again. By an okay, if if you're an Anapanasati dude, which is okay, if you're a Dhamma dude, then uh, and let us say that you set it up so that may, it doesn't have to be um, uh, an elephant because mm -hmm. we don't have elephants around, but we have other animals. For instance, someone mm -hmm. can be attacked by a dog when they're a child. And it actually yeah, yeah. depends a whole lot upon the age of the child. The younger the child, when it's attacked by the dog, the more likely it's going to be a really severe memory. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's fast forward it to the fact that, yes, you did get attacked by an elephant when you were a child. You probably didn't survive if it was an elephant. <laughs> so maybe yeah, you yeah. just thought that the elephant attacked you, and then you were afraid of the elephant. And so now you uh -huh. go to the zoo, and you've got an elephant right here in front of you. If you are practicing correctly, you can say, right now, that elephant is on the inside of that fence, and I'm safe right now. Let mm -hmm. me show myself, this investigation is, I am safe. Mm -hmm. This is not dangerous. In other words, we're dealing with the elephant in the here now. Only right now, mm -hmm. the elephant in, is not the part of the here now. It just triggered the here now of being afraid of elephants. But the real elephant's on the other side of the fence. He's not dangerous at all. In fact, that elephant may not even be paying attention to me. He may be looking at somebody who's feeding him peanuts or something. I don't know. Yeah. But the whole point is, is that we're safe now. So, because I've actually done this with, uh, with a child just recently. 
that the child came afraid of the dogs. Our dogs didn't do much of anything to this child, but he was still afraid of dogs, and the mom said that it was because of before. Within 15 minutes, we had him playing with the dogs. We didn't do it right away, but how we did it was because everybody in the room came and petted the dog, not inviting him to do it, just enjoying petting the dog. And when he saw everybody was enjoying petting the dog, he came over and petted the dog too. And he was so surprised. Mm -hmm. that. In other words, we created an environment for the boy so that he could see for himself that it was not dangerous. That's, in fact, how we can uh, manage almost any fear that we have, an, an old recurring fear to recognize that it's not dangerous. Then I'm okay. Even if it's a tense situation like taking an exam, I'm going to be okay before the exam, I'm going to be okay while I'm taking the exam, and I'm going to be okay after I finish the exam, and I'm probably going to make a really good grade. So I'm not going to worry about it. That attitude has a whole lot better chance of actually doing well on the test if somebody goes in really freaked out, he studied all night, he's tired in the morning, he goes in all upset, oh, I'm going to flunk this test, I don't know what I'm going to do, my dad's going to get angry at me if I flunk this test. And so now while he's flunking the test, while he's taking the test, he's not thinking about the test. He's thinking about flunking the test and getting punished for the test. Which of these two guys are going to do better on the test? We don't know the uh, uh, mental abilities or the, the skills of either one of them. Just the attitude they have about the test is enough to see who's going to make a good grade and who's not. The attitude wins here. And so the attitude that I'm not afraid of that elephant is the attitude that we want to develop by checking it out to recognize this elephant's not fearful. My memory is the fearful. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha, okay. Teresa, you have another question? <laughs> you don't, okay. Well, let's bring this one to a close. Um, Marisa, I am really happy to see you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope to see you again soon. I hope that this gives you an idea about how to practice. We really haven't talked about your practice, and so if you don't mind, call me in the next day or two, and we can uh, talk directly. You hear you just sort of joined the conversation with... Uh, uh, with Mark. So, Mark, I hope to see you again soon, too. You go yeah, practice. Yeah, definitely. Watch these hindrances. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. We'll do. Okay. Well, we'll see you guys later. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.